I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Peacemaking is difficult work, especially in the Middle East. To uproot decades of entrenched animosity, even when the tangible benefits are so clear, truly, it takes grit, determination, and creativity. The Abraham Accords that normalized relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and later Morocco and Sudan marked the second historic breakthrough of acceptance of Israel after its peace accords with Egypt and Jordan in the 20th century. Today, I'm pleased to welcome one of the main architects of the Abraham Accords, the chief legal officer for the Trump Organization for two decades. Jason Greenblatt was appointed by President Trump in 2017 to serve as a special representative for international negotiations. He is here to tell us about these historic initiatives. Jason, welcome to In These Times. Thanks. I'm honored to be here. I've heard I've always been a big admirer, so thank you for having me as a guest. So I'd like to ask you, first of all, you, you have a very, very long uh, experience knowing the former president, Donald Trump. You worked in the Trump Organization as a senior executive, and then you continued on with him for uh, several years in the White House. Just... Tell us what brought you to the Trump Organization and how was it to work there? I was a junior lawyer and I was brought there by a headhunter and I worked there for 20 years, rising up through the ranks and then eventually joined him at the White House. My experience was different than many would assume if they watched the mainstream media. I'm not here to defend every one of former President Trump's tweets or some of his comments at his rallies and things like that. But I had an extraordinarily positive experience, both from a work perspective. I loved what I did. I loved working for him, with him, with his three grown children, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric. And also as a proud, observant, obvious Jew, my experience with him and his family was only extremely positive. I think he showed me extreme respect, both as a Sabbath observer, a kashrut observer, and I can only say great things about him and his family for the work that I did with them and for them. But I do recognize that he could be controversial to some in some of his messaging. Do you understand the concerns that many Jews, I, th- I would say the majority of Jews, American Jews, have with the president as it relates to a perception that there is a tolerance and even an encouragement on his part in terms of his rhetoric of a spectrum of people who promote hatred, and in particular, people who promote hatred of Jews. I want to try to address that carefully, right? I understand some concern, but I also think the concern is larger than it ought to be because of how the mainstream media portrays it. If you take, for example, the Charlottesville episode, which happened some years ago and caused tremendous controversy, for a long time, CNN and others only took a slice of the Charlottesville clip where then-President Trump spoke about fine people on both sides. But if you really go back to YouTube and you watch what he actually said, he condemned the white supremacists, and there was one other phrase that he used, he condemned the haters, and then he went on to say there are fine people on both sides. And it took several years for CNN to actually air that clip. CNN did a very good documentary on anti-Semitism in the fall of last year, I was a guest on that show, as was Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL. And when I was asked about the Charlottesville episode, I explained that it wasn't fair that they were taking a slice of President Trump's remarks. 
And to their credit, they aired the entire piece. So I think, unfortunately, what happens is things get attributed to former President Trump that aren't actually fair. And again, I'm not trying to defend every one of his comments. I understand where people are coming from. So I think what people need to do is take a step back, try to recognize the real situation, and also hear from people like me who were able to see a side of President Trump that they maybe don't see all the time. President Trump was enormously respectful, as I mentioned earlier on in in the interview, of me being an observant Jew. And I think, unfortunately, his comments often get wrapped up into the political battle. Our country is deeply divided. And I don't think how he's portrayed is necessarily the reality. And I think he is often portrayed unfairly. So you know him very well. You worked with him uh, for many years. You know, everybody makes mistakes and most people, they try to make amends or they at least apologize. Do you think there's something about President Trump's personality or politics that gives the impression that he's just never willing to admit that he made a mistake? It's a good question. It's a fair question. I don't know the answer, but what I would guess, having worked for him for all those years, is you have a guy who is very pro-Israel, is very good to the Jewish people, employees like me and others, always condemned anti-Semitism. I remember an incident during the 2016 campaign where people were accusing him of supporting David Duke, and he outright condemned David Duke, but the media said he didn't do it or he didn't do it fast enough. There were all these stories being written. And I think from his perspective, he was sort of taking a step back and saying, hold up, I say the right things and I still get criticized. I try to condemn. Maybe I don't do it the very second I'm asked because I might be doing all sorts of other things, in that case, running for president. And yet I get nowhere. So I think he thought there was a losing battle. But, you know, I don't speak for him. I don't know really what's going on in his head on that. And it could be there's a political perspective. It could be that he doesn't like admitting that he was wrong. I just don't know the answer. But what I can say unequivocally is that Donald Trump that I know that I worked for for 20 years and then three years is neither an anti-Semite nor an enabler of anti-Semites. That's probably the clearest way I can answer that question. So take us through the uh, campaign and the election. Did you expect to win? Did Donald Trump expect to win? And how was that? Well, it seems to be a lifetime ago. It wasn't that long ago, but given my life experience since then, it seems to be a lifetime ago. I was at the, I think it was the New York Hilton, if I'm not mistaken, with my family. The campaign had a big event there. My wife and kids were there. I thought that he had an excellent chance. I know that the mainstream media thought otherwise. There were all sorts of odds against his winning, and it was a real nail-biter. I think we were there till about three or four in the morning. I remember my kids sort of hanging over a railing of a balcony that we eventually settled into to watch, falling asleep. And then all of a sudden he won. It was really quite remarkable. I think the country was ready for change. I think he brought to that election what people thought was a breath of fresh air, different, non-political, but he was willing to say things sometimes to his detriment that were black and white and different than people normally heard from politicians. And I think he brought to the White House a change, a change of spirit, a change of policy. And that was great for his followers and supporters, definitely made people who were against him uncomfortable. But I think he accomplished some really great things for the United States, for certain of its allies and friends, including the state of Israel. 
that others didn't accomplish. And I think it was because he just did things differently than others. You advised him on Israel and Middle Eastern matters during the campaign. Did you want or expect to be in the administration? Did it take you completely by surprise or were there some conversations about setting that up? Even though I was an Israel advisor for him, I had no idea that I would be doing this. In fact, it's a funny story because I'm not, I was never a political person. I actually hate politics. My wife and I started watching that show, The West Wing, during the campaign, just to get a feel for it. I mean, you know, it sounds silly and it is very different from reality in some ways, but in some ways it's not. So we watched the show, we binge watched it, and we looked at each other. We said, nah, you know, even if he asks you, you don't really belong in Washington. You're not that kind of person. So it came as a big surprise. And nevertheless, it was the right decision to go. So it's really astonishing. I remember that period. It turns out that three yeshiva bochers were essentially overseeing, I don't know if I'm overstating this, were essentially overseeing Middle East policy. You, Jared Kushner, and David Friedman, who became the ambassador, the American ambassador in Israel. How was that? Was it almost like three people from the hood brainstorming about how to change the world? Or Well, you're far kinder than the mainstream media was. There were many articles about the, and I'm paraphrasing, but sort of, what do you three yeshiva buffers know about making peace between Israel and the Palestinians and Israel and its Arab neighbors? We grew into the role. I, you know, left our own devices, David and I might have put forth a different plan. You mean the Israeli-Palestinian peace plan, right? Correct. Yeah. So you're sitting there and you're working on the Israeli-Palestinian peace accord that was going to once and for all solve the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. Well, we certainly hope so. My job for a long time was, especially for most of 2017, was to sit and learn what happened in the past, why it failed, what could be possible. And I realized early on that what could be possible is not the talking points that people had said for decades. For decades, people use the phrase two-state solution. And I learned that the two-state solution means different things to different people. We decided not to use that phrase because we thought it was just too meaningless, really. What does a state mean? What does it mean for Israel if Israel were to cede land and give Palestinians complete authority and autonomy without dealing with the security aspects? What does it mean to the Palestinians? So we spent a great deal of time, me in particular, traveling throughout the Middle East, learning, understanding, hearing from people. Ultimately, I think that that peace plan, the the Israeli-Palestinian peace plan, which of course incorporated normalcy and relationships, peace, if you will, between Israel and its Arab neighbors, not all of them, of course, is what became the Abraham Accords. Why? Because the Palestinian leadership walked away from us after President Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So although we still spent about a year and a half to two years finishing that Israeli-Palestinian peace plan, what happened with the Abraham Accords is that aspect of the Israeli-Palestinian peace plan just ended up as the Abraham Accords between Israel and some of its Arab neighbors. I think it it was coined what was going to be the deal of the century, if I'm not mistaken. What was going, what was in, what were the main planks of that deal? So it was coined the deal of the century. I I stayed away from that because it became pejorative. There were phrases like the slap of the century that some of the Palestinians used, 
the steel of the century that some of the media used. So I, I didn't use the deal of the century, even though I think it it's you know it, it was a very Trump-like phrase, although I don't think he was the one who coined it. The, the broad outlines were we wanted to give the Palestinians everything that they needed to create something special of their own, the way Israel had created something special, to give the Palestinians every success that they could try to create if they solved some of their critical issues. One of the critical issues that needed to be solved was reuniting the Palestinians under one leadership. Because right now, there are two Palestinian leaderships. There's the leadership in Ramallah, in what some call the West Bank, what I like to call Judea and Samaria. And there are the terrorist thugs that are Iran-controlled, Hamas, in Gaza. The leadership between Gaza and the West Bank hate each other. They hate each other more than they hate Israel, in fact. We said, if there's going to be a peace arrangement, there needs to be a solution to how to unite the Palestinian leadership under one leadership that recognizes Israel as a Jewish state. We provided for a map that showed what a Palestinian state should look like. It was probably the first map that was endorsed by Prime Minister Netanyahu. It was a controversial map because on the very right of Israel, they didn't want to give land up to the Palestinians. On the Palestinian side, it you know, gave them what they called cantons or islands that were not connected. Our view was they're not connected now. You have 2 million Palestinians in Gaza. You have Palestinians living in the West Bank. There is no connection point between them. Our plan provided for a tunnel or a highway between them so they could be connected. But probably the most important and, of course, most controversial part of it was security. We did not give the Palestinians autonomy over security. We gave it purely to the Israelis. Our goal was to allow the Palestinians to do as much security as they were capable of, but give Israelis oversight. Why? A couple of reasons. Israel had decades of experience working on security. Palestinians really had very little, although they did some security, and they tried to keep Palestinians and Israelis safe. There's just no comparison. We also thought that it was ludicrous to ask Israel to sort of like cross their fingers and hope that the Palestinians could keep the Israelis safe. Our view was if they kept Israel safe by holding on to security in the right way, that's great. And then Israel wouldn't have to interfere. But if the Palestinians either weren't capable or ended up being capable, but then one day a new terrorist organization took hold of that area, Israel needed the right to absolutely go in and make sure that Israelis were kept secure. But I didn't think it was fair to ask anyone, let alone a friend and an ally like Israel, that had suffered terror attacks and war since the moment of its inception to just give up security. That turned out to be one of the most controversial parts of the plan. In looking back at it, it wasn't the only reason that the Palestinians rejected the plan. They didn't like hardly any of the plan. Is, is that right? Is that a fair statement? I think it's a fair statement depending on which Palestinians you're talking about. Let's say Hamas, for example, who simply want to destroy the Jewish state of Israel, they hated every aspect of it. If you're talking about the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah, you know, I don't speak for them, but I had heard that there were parts of it that they liked, even though they wouldn't admit it out loud, and parts of it that they hated. If you're talking about ordinary Palestinians, and I've had conversations with ordinary Palestinians before the plan was released, even after the Palestinian leadership cut us off at the end of 2017, after the plan was released and continuing through this day, they respected the fact that the plan created many, many opportunities for them. 
But these ordinary Palestinians, even though they rejected certainly parts of the plan, especially the parts that related to Jerusalem, they don't have the power to speak out loud. They don't have the power to say what's truly on their minds. So unfortunately, these conversations remain, you know, private conversations in salons, living rooms, restaurants, all over the world, in Europe, in the Arab countries, in Israel, even in Palestinian areas, where they acknowledge that the plan actually contained many great things for them, even though there were parts of it that they certainly hated. Am I correct to assume that you crafted the plan based on a general set of assumptions, what you thought was the maximum that the Israelis could compromise on, comparing that to what you thought the maximum that the Palestinians would be able to compromise on, and the plan itself still, there were huge gaps, and they, they weren't even close. Does the plan look the way it does because you felt that the Israelis couldn't compromise more on what you gave in terms of security and other and territories? And if it is the case that this was your best understanding of how to reach an agreement based on each side's minimal needs, and it was still broadly and widely rejected on the Palestinian side. What does that say about the future of reaching an agreement with the Palestinians? So I think what it says about the future under today's Palestinian leadership is bleak. You know, we weren't the first to fail. I don't know if someone will pick it up before the Palestinian leadership changes. But at the moment, Hamas has zero interest in creating a peace plan that allows Israel to exist. They say otherwise, but it's not true. Palestinian leadership in Ramallah perhaps can enter into a peace agreement that isn't the kind we drafted, but the kind that they say they're willing to take, which is, you know, they refer to the 67 borders, which really aren't borders. They say that they'll accept a certain number of Palestinian so-called refugees to go back into Israel. They say that they absolutely need control of security, but the sky's the limit in how they cooperate with Israel. You know, there are various talking points that they use. In theory, even the current leadership might be interested in entering into a peace agreement, but one that I don't think would be acceptable to any Israeli government, not just to Bibi Netanyahu government. So I think at the moment, it's bleak. You've spoken with presumably dozens or hundreds of Palestinian and Arab leaders around the Middle East. Do you think the Palestinians really want a two-state solution? I think that the ordinary Palestinians who I met, and countless ones of all ages, of all political stripes, I think they are willing to accept a Jewish state and a Palestinian state living side by side. The devil's in the details, of course, in terms of what that means. But I think the vast majority of Palestinians who I spoke to, and they probably don't represent certain views of those who hold power, are willing to do that. But unfortunately, those that hold power, Hamas and some of the leadership, and I don't even mean President Abbas, I mean some of the leadership in the Fatah party in the West Bank, are not willing to do that. I think that they made promises to the Palestinians for decades. They believed that this land was stolen from them. It's the diet that they were fed and that they feed generations of Palestinians. And I think that until new leadership comes in, and until they change their education system, until they hold on to their narrative, which is fine, but also 
acknowledge the Jewish narrative and the Jewish historical ties to the land of Israel, including Judea and Samaria, it's going to be very difficult to agree to what some refer to as the two-state solution. I think there's broad consensus. A solution to the Israeli-Palestinian dispute is not uh, on the horizon. It's not in the near term. So what do you do in the meantime? Are the people and the world really condemned to periodic wars with Hamas and periodic Israeli raids and terrorism? That's a pretty bleak vision for the decades to come. First, we have to recognize the reality of the world is there is always going to be conflict. This is only one small conflict in the world. You know, Russia, Ukraine being one of the biggest today. You have Syria, you have Yemen. There are conflicts all around the world. And while it's sad, tragic perhaps to say it, I think we have to recognize that reality. So what are the solutions? Israel hopefully continues to thrive. Israel hopefully continues to make peace with additional Arab countries. I'd like to see Palestinian lives improved, and that in itself is a big problem, because while the U.S. is prepared to make their lives better, while Israel is prepared to make Palestinian lives better, Palestinian leadership resists that. They don't like to be looked at as a non-political cause, so they resist attempts to make their lives better other than accepting handouts. It may sound harsh, but recognizing reality and accepting the fact that the solution isn't here today, and it may not be here for years to come, but that is no different than some of the other conflicts. It doesn't absolve us from trying uh, to make peace. It doesn't absolve us from trying to make Palestinian lives better. It doesn't absolve us from trying to help Israel help the Palestinians where it's reasonable and feasible and it doesn't affect Israeli security. But it's a tough road. It's a tough challenge. So take us to the uh, Abraham Accords. Did you start working on those accords from day one? Or did you come to embrace the potential of those accords in the aftermath of the failed agreement that you wanted to craft with the Palestinians? The concept of the Abraham Accords, of Israel signing peace agreements with its Arab neighbors, started, I, I don't know, day one, but very, very early in the administration. We were approached by multiple parties who said the time was ripe and that the Palestinian leadership wasn't ready and we should skip over them and jump right to the Arab countries. You were approached by multiple parties, including people in the Gulf region and in the Arab Middle East? No, as a matter of fact, on the contrary, when we tested that theory of skipping over the Palestinians after we had heard it from others, we, I, I don't want to say we got a cold shoulder, but it wasn't clear to us that they were ready to do it. And I think the reason for that is they are very supportive of the Palestinian people, even if some are frustrated by the Palestinian leadership, and they were not ready to abandon the Palestinians. They wanted us to give it our best shot. So what we decided to do was have two parallel tracks, a full peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians and Israel and those Arab neighbors that were realistic. Of course, we had no designs on being able to sign a peace agreement between Israel and Syria, Israel and Lebanon, Israel and Yemen. But those countries that we thought might become part of an Israeli-Palestinian-Israeli-Arab agreement, we designed a plan that included everything. At the same time, we spent a great deal of time, Jared and I, 
visiting the Arab capitals to explain how we saw the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, trying to dispel the myths of the past, how we saw the Israeli-Arab conflict, how we saw Jerusalem, teaching them about the Temple Mount in ways that were different than they thought. And after the failure of the Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement is when things started to show that maybe, maybe there might be something there. And it took many months after the Israeli-Palestinian plan was revealed for that to ultimately reach fruition. And I think back to some of the wins that we had. You know, we were excited when we saw that we were able to get Israeli journalists into Bahrain for a conference that Jared Kushner had organized for the benefit of the Palestinians, or the United Arab Emirates agreeing to allow Israel, before the Abraham Accords, to join the World Expo, to get, you know, Israeli athletes participating in sports in Qatar in the United Arab Emirates, Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem being sung in these Arab countries. I remember being shocked when I noticed at the Louvre in, in Abu Dhabi that there was a small Jewish exhibit. All of these small wins were sort of breathtaking in and of themselves. But once the Abraham Accords happened, they seemed so small, so nominal. But they were all stones on this path that eventually led to the Abraham Accords. You said that you began having uh, discussions with people in the Gulf State about the history of the Jewish connection to the Middle East. They didn't know that. You literally sat down with, what, uh, notebooks or textbooks or a slideshow and explained to them the 3,000-year history of the Jews in that part of the world? It's very hard to tell what they knew or what they were willing to accept. And I'll, I'll give you a small example. I won't say which country, which person. But I remember a situation where I actually, my son, he's now 24. He was 19 at the time. He was studying in Israel for the year in Jerusalem. And... I was with a high-level advisor to one of the leaders in the region. And that person talked about Jerusalem the way you would ordinarily expect one of the Arab neighbors to speak about Jerusalem. And I remember saying to my son, well, you know, you're studying at the Shabbat Kotel, which overlooks the Western Wall. Why don't you tell this gentleman your take on Jerusalem? And he did. And they proceeded to have a very interesting conversation about Jerusalem, about the Arab view of the Temple Mount, what they call Haram al-Sharif and Al-Aqsa Mosque. My son spoke about its holiness to Judaism. And I remember thinking, you know, this guy legitimately does not seem to know about the Jewish history of the Temple Mount, the fact that there were two temples there for thousands of years. We yearned for it. I think he was truly surprised to hear it. That doesn't mean that the leadership doesn't know that but I think there are many who are schooled in a way that distorts history. And, you know, what can you say? For decades, this is how they raised them. But when we raised the other side of this, most people were receptive to hearing the other side. Uh, I'll just bookend it with one more story. After President Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital at December of 2017, in January, when we were already cut off from the Palestinian leadership, I still met with Palestinians. And I remember one of them saying, look, I hate what the United States did. I hate what President Trump did. But Jerusalem belongs to all of us. Let's figure out a solution where we could share Jerusalem, including the holy sites, where everybody could thrive and prosper. That's a very different Palestinian talking point than the talking points that normally the Palestinian leadership would get. 
So where is the truth and who feels what and who knows what? It's very hard to say. And I think it differs on, on the person, where they grew up, how much they were educated, where they were educated. But that's why I feel so strongly about continuing to have those conversations. And it's why I go back to the region again and again and again. Mm. And it does put a premium on education, right? I mean, part of the arguments about the Palestinian educational system is is they actually don't teach the Jewish connection to the land of Israel, to the contrary. They teach that these are colonial usurpers. Education is so important. Dialogue is so important. The willingness to have these open conversations is challenging and politically fraught and religiously fraught as they may be. I have no problem accepting the fact that there is a mosque on the Temple Mount that is holy to Muslims. History unfolded that way, but I also have no problem explaining Jewish history on the Temple Mount. And more often than not, when I'm dealing with intellectually honest Palestinians and intellectually honest Arabs in the Gulf, they don't challenge me on that. They want a solution to it. The sense we get um, as observers, as close observers, is the Abraham Accord states that signed a peace accord with Israel. It seems like it's taken much more seriously in terms of the objectives of incorporating Israeli commerce and Israelis themselves and the populations themselves into some kind of broad regional peace. And it seems to us, just seems to us, while there's still a lot of work left to do, that the effort is to create a warm peace, warmer than the uh, peace between the populations of uh, Egypt, Jordan, and uh, Israel. Is that right? It is right. You have very serious leadership in the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco, and they do want to create a warm peace. It is a work in progress. It's also different because, especially when it comes to Bahrain and the UAE, Jordan has an extremely large Palestinian population. By some accounts, 40%. By other accounts, north of 70% which means the King of Jordan has a politically challenging situation to manage. I think, unfortunately, Jordan loses out by not creating a war peace between Israel and Jordan, but I recognize that it's difficult for him. The same thing with Egypt. You know, it's, it's not Palestinian the way Jordan's Palestinian, but you have two countries that were once at war with each other, that killed each other. It takes time to educate. But as I heard from many Arabs in the Gulf, these countries never fought a war with Israel. No Emirati ever killed an Israeli and vice versa. No Bahraini ever killed an Israeli. I think that's probably factually true, though I have no way to prove it. So it, it becomes easier. And they also, these countries are looking for a completely different future. They know that the time for oil is limited. They have a very young population that is thriving for a different kind of lifestyle. They're implementing changes to their societies left and right. I mean, every time I go back, I'm amazed. And this is, by the way, beyond the two, those two countries in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia and others, the change is palpable. So I think their goal is to have that warm peace. It will take time, but I, I'm, I'm very bullish on what's happened. But I think it's because of the leaders. In your view, is this peace permanent or is it at risk of being severed because of some regional developments? Very tough to answer the question. If war were to break out and the reasons for the war were those that the Arab countries couldn't explain or understand. Any peace is fragile. Peace is unfortunately not something that could be taken for granted. But absent something dramatic, and despite the, some Palestinians' best efforts to derail it, like Hamas, 
And despite, you know, the mainstream media here making all sorts of accusations against Prime Minister Netanyahu's government, I think that these countries recognize they have far more to gain than to lose keeping this peace. Part of their motivation to sign a peace accord with Israel and to come under Pax Americana was fear of Iran. So if were there to be some kind of joint strike from Israel and or the United States on the Iranian nuclear facilities, that would not be something that would break the Abraham Accords in your view, or would it? It shouldn't. However, if Iran then lashes out at these other countries, it could. So these we have to understand that these countries are just as much in Iran's target as Israel is. You take Qatar as an example. Qatar is a tiny nation state living in the shadows of Iran, sharing a gas field. It's, you know, its assets, its wealth comes from that gas field. And we have to recognize that the job of Qatar's leadership is to keep its country safe, to keep its citizens safe, to keep its assets safe. Saudi Arabia as well. So while they are just as much in danger of Iran, they have to analyze things differently from Israel. And if there were to be a strike and they are threatened by Iran and they feel it's necessary to go in a different direction, we need to respect that too. But I imagine in the course of the negotiations leading up to the accord, Iran came up frequently. Oh, no doubt. From day one, when we met the Arab countries, they had felt abandoned by the Iran deal. They might not have been as vocal as Bibi Netanyahu was, which cost Bibi dearly in terms of certain politics here in the United States back when he addressed the joint session of Congress. But they, as much as Israel understood the Iran deal and the Iranian regime's threat and how the Abraham Accords could make everybody safer in the region if they all joined forces together. But there is a question mark on that. Tell us about Saudi Arabia. We keep on hearing that Saudi Arabia may be the next country that might join the Accords. What is your perspective on that? I think at the moment, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States is fraught. I think that it would be hard for them to do something until that relationship is repaired. They would also be hard for them to do something when the question of the Iran deal is still an open question. I look at things a bit differently with Saudi Arabia. I think we ought to recognize them for what they've done with Israel. Example, after the Abraham Accords, they opened up air corridors between Israel and Bahrain and Israel and the UAE. That was a big deal. It was followed up, I think, uh, the summer of 2022, where they opened up all of their airspace to all flights, which of course includes Israel. That's a big deal. They had an economic conference, FII, the Future Investment Initiative, where they had open attendance by Jews, some of whom were dual citizens, Israelis, and other countries as well. And these are all very, very big. Uh, I myself was just on vacation with my family in both Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And the changes to the society there, especially in Saudi Arabia, but me being an openly Jewish person and the warm welcome I got, no matter You know, the fact that I wore my kippah, the fact that my son wore his kippah, I think some assumed that I was Israeli. There was one, two instances, I'll tell you about one in the mall where a guy came up to us, he shook my hand, he shook my son's hand and he said, I'm so happy that you're here. Now, whether he meant that because we were openly observant Jews or because he thought maybe we were Israelis, I don't know. I think that 
things are changing so rapidly there. And I think that Saudi is doing its best to, you know, welcome Israel on the side, behind closed doors, where it can. But at the same time, they're not ready. They're just not ready. And until their needs are met, it's hard to say when and whether they'll join the Abraham Accords. So here's my last question to you, given what you just described to us, given your diplomatic experience, where do you think we will be in the next, by the time Israel celebrates its centennial in 25 years, do you think Israel will look stronger, the Middle East will look better? Middle East is a big term. I'm not optimistic about the war-torn countries. You know, Lebanon, for example, I now have many friends from Lebanon, but they all live outside of Lebanon. And they're not optimistic about Lebanon, so hard for me to be optimistic about Lebanon, Yemen, Syria. But I am extraordinarily optimistic about the GCC countries and Israel. My feeling is anecdotal, right? I can only base it on the many conversations I have with Saudis, Emiratis, Qataris, Bahrainis, leadership, and regular people, people like you and I. I am optimistic. Are there people who might hate me because I'm Jewish, might hate me because I'm an Israel supporter? might hit Israel, of course. I don't want to pretend just because I had this amazing vacation in Qatar and Saudi Arabia and walked around as a proud Jew that everybody would embrace me. But for the most part, I think that the the feelings were real. They're optimistic about a brighter future. They're sort of astounded by what the leadership in Saudi Arabia has done. I mean, you know, the World Cup in Qatar, the people are so proud of what they did. And I think they know that Israel's here to stay and that Israel could be a tremendous partner for them. Will there be bumps in the road? Yeah, it's a tough, tough region, but I'm very optimistic. Special envoy Jason Greenblatt, thank you very much for taking the time and talking about these critical issues with us. Thank you so much for having me and asking such great, important questions. This is a challenging episode for me. I'm grateful to Special Representative Greenblatt for spending this time together. I'm committed to dialogue and seek out people with whom I disagree, both within the Jewish community and without. I invested 18 months in dialogue with an ultra-Orthodox rabbi, Yosef Reinman, that resulted in our book, One People, Two Worlds. I am part of an interfaith group of senior clergy in New York representing Christian, Jewish, and Muslim communities. And closer to home, I regularly invite congregants who I know disagree with me into my office to give me a piece of their minds and tell me why they think I'm wrong. Our world is much too polarized. We are much too quick to characterize and condemn. We shout people down much too often nowadays, and even many liberals appear ready to sacrifice free speech, the very cement of free and liberal societies, to the passions of the mob on this or that issue of identity politics or political philosophy. That this occurs frequently on college campuses, self-declared bastions of free speech and inquiry, is deeply troubling to me. Jewish tradition emphasized over and over again that persuasion, vigorous challenge, openness to debate, a willingness to reconsider when new evidence emerges, these are the characteristics of a healthy and free community. Intellectual and political diversity is a good thing. Censorship and canceling leads to authoritarianism. Come let us reason together, Isaiah urges. Freedom is messy. Healthy societies are full of noise. We need not be afraid of vigorous debate. We must avoid so objectifying opponents that we no longer see ourselves as on the same side. Throughout my public career, I've tried to model this Jewish approach to debate and social repair. At the same time, I'm a human being. 
And I confess that there are occasions when living up to these Jewish standards is difficult for me, intellectually and emotionally. It is in this context that I dialogued with Jason Greenblatt. I have never hid my views from my congregants or the Jewish community that Donald Trump was and remains manifestly unfit for any public office, let alone the highest office in the land. For me, it is not primarily a question of policies, although of course I have political views based upon my understanding of what Judaism demands of us. But I recognize that a two-party system is healthy, and we should expect and even welcome that sometimes our policy side wins and sometimes we lose. Losing keeps us honest and responsible to the people. Knowing how to lose, how to transfer power peacefully, is the essence of the miracle of American democracy. And therefore, Trump's problematic temperament, troubling emotional makeup, and most importantly, his refusal to honor centuries-old constitutional norms that define the American way of life, in my view, constitute a unique threat to the country as we know it. Since Donald Trump was elected, I have struggled to understand the Trump phenomenon and have found myself unable to fully comprehend the depth of support for him. I want to know what I am missing. And so, I welcome the opportunity to speak with Jason Greenblatt. Few people know Donald Trump better than he does. Jason worked in the Trump Organization for close to 20 years before Trump was elected president, and then through nearly three years of his presidency. Jason gives us an opportunity to access the hearts and minds of those who were, and still are, loyal to Trump. I hope that this podcast gives you a fuller perspective of the Trump phenomenon. I believe that there are two critical policy matters affecting America, Israel, and the Jewish community that Jason worked on that will be considered historic by future generations. First, the decision to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It was a decision I strongly supported. The opening of the American embassy in Jerusalem was right, proper, and long overdue. It should have been done decades ago, in 1949, when Israel declared Jerusalem its capital. Many presidents, Democrats and Republicans, promised to move the American embassy. It was American law, approved and supported by overwhelming consensus. It is for each country to declare its own capital. What other nation declares a capital unrecognized by the nations of the world? What special reservation is reserved for Israel? The embassy is in West Jerusalem. Who contests West Jerusalem? Only those who are implacably opposed to the very existence of the Jewish state. President Trump did not preempt the eventual borders of Jerusalem. He did not preclude a permanent status agreement. He simply acknowledged a fact. And second, the Abraham Accords that Jason and others worked on were a truly grand accomplishment more than the tangible economic benefits to the signatories, Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan. The agreement solidifies the spirit of understanding, reconciliation, and compromise in the Middle East. It reestablishes the fact that Israel is going nowhere. It is an integral and powerful part of the region. The accords broke the dam of Arab and Muslim rejection of Israel, emotionally, psychologically, and diplomatically. It constitutes the second historic breakthrough of acceptance of Israel after the peace accords with Egypt and Jordan. It shattered the veto that the Palestinians exercised over the Arab world that discouraged the Palestinians from making the hard choices and taking the hard decisions necessary to achieve a two-state solution, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state living side by side in peace. These two policies, moving the embassy to Jerusalem and brokering the Abraham Accords, 
reflected a broad consensus within the United States and Israel. The proof of this is that the Biden administration does not seek to overturn or reverse them. To the contrary, American policy is to build upon both. May it be that these two decisions constitute important building blocks towards an eventual peace with the Palestinian people. I hope I am alive to see that day. We've been together now for two seasons. If you've enjoyed listening and want even more Jewish substance, I hope you'll pick up a copy of my new book, The Lilac Tree, a collection of my thoughts developed over the past 20 years on life and death, science and faith, politics and morality, the past and the future. It's just been published, and it's available now wherever you can get your books online. If you have a chance to read it, send me an email at ahirsch at swfs.org and let me know what you think. Until next time, this is In These Times. <laughs>